I wanted to start the show this morning with, do you want to build a snowman? But Mr. Catherwood said no, so we're not going to do that. Hello. Financial opinions over the course of this hour and opinions solely those of the commentator, not necessarily those of Bellwether Investment Management, Inc., News Talk 1010, or Bell Media. Information discussed should not be construed as investment advice, and individuals should consult your financial advisor. I'm Ian Grant. Good morning and welcome to the Sunday Money Show here on News Talk 1010. And this morning from Bellwether Investment Management, Inc. is investment advisor, Alan Cameron. Hello, sir. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You seem uh, chipper this morning. The world is good out there, I take it. The world has been restored to its <laughs> uh, to its former luster and glory, yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting run. This So the fourth quarter, as we've said on a number of occasions, an unusually bad fourth quarter. And uh, as I, again, had said for a number, a number of shows, not any particularly good reason. In hmm. fact, I str- struggled to find any reason at all for the, the markets, like a legitimate reason, a good fundamental sound reason right. for, for, for repricing of stocks. And I couldn't really find one. I mean, I, I, I could read the headlines. I could read the, the panic-stricken articles. But it all left me a little wanting. It was uh, the fear that interest rates may, uh, may rise. Well, they're only going to rise if the economy is strong enough to support them. Right. Do you agree, by the way, with uh, the President of the United States saying that the Fed acted too quickly in raising those rates? Well, hard to say, right? I mean, if if he's wrong about that, then how come the Fed has changed their tune? Right. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, That's what I thought yeah. when I read it, too. It was like, if you remember here in Canada a year and a half ago, I'm sorry, I don't know how, how long, months ago, you know, it was, well, you know, rates are going to rise to the where they should be and it's going to happen and all that right. stuff. And now you've Let, got this neutered puppy on let's, it. Let's say you'd uh, come at the question a different way. Let's oh. say you had said to me in October, October 3rd, which was the day, the minute, the beginning of a fairly sig- significant sell-off. So the fourth quarter was the worst fourth quarter in 10 years. Mm. December, the worst month of December in 80 years. All of that precipitated to the minute to a speech that the Federal Reserve governor gave in which he said these fateful words. He said, interest rates are far below neutral. Neutral, yes. Whatever that means, That's right? right. Well, he said that in November, having wiped uh, several trillion dollars off stock market prices and still not touched interest rates, not really any ch- big change in the evidence coming in either, mm-hmm. other than that wealth effect, perhaps, as stock markets come down. He then said, we're just below neutral. In January, he says, that's it, we're on hold. And more recently, that's it, we're not touching interest rates for the remainder of this calendar year. So if you'd said, was the Federal Reserve's governor's comments in October misguided? based on all of the Federal Reserve com- uh, comments ever since. Uh, yeah. So hard to fault Trump for pointing out the obvious. Absolutely. Right? So fourth quarter was miserable, but not for any good reason. And here we have interest rates now looking very tame compared to all of the uh, fearful prognostications. It could just be, as so often is the case, that markets have had a decent run. They're looking for a, re- a correction, uh, what you would call a reset. They're going to establish this, the lows of uh, December as the new floor and in all likelihood, we don't see it ever again, right? We, we build off that base from here on in. So what did we end up with in the first quarter? Well, as, uh, as we had also said, if you go down for no good reason, then you, things that don't make sense don't tend to last. So we've just completed the first quarter, and for pretty much North America's markets, for the first quarter, we've just had the best start to the year, the best three-month start to the year since 1998. So the best in 20 years following up the worst fourth quarter in 10. Um, 
we rarely, rarely see starts this good. And anytime you do see a start any remote, anywhere near remotely this good, even just a positive January and February, never mind a positive three months to start the year, mm -hmm. uh, there's only a couple of instances in 100 years where you're not positive for the remainder of the year. And the average rate of return is pretty good. Partly because what that's indicating is a a failed prediction of recession, a failed prediction of a stock market or of a bear market. That when the market gets that forward-looking estimate wrong, well, then they have to catch up. They got to get back onto the right track again, and and we're seeing that in uh, in equity markets. But I think the big news is uh, still on interest rates, which is uh, this is this is not something we need to spend a lot of time worrying about over the the months and months and months to come. And if that's not the case, well, there's still a lot of assets out there that I think are mispriced, including preferred shares in Canada, where they they're yielding wonderfully well. Right. And you've got all kinds of people who are, you know, whether it's fearful of the market volatility, which you know, given the V shape we've just seen over the last six months, might be a bit of a misplaced fear. It was just it's just market volatility. But if that's the case, and that has caused people to head to the sidelines hopefully not the worst of timing, but maybe they're sitting on some cash and still have a, a, a more conservative bent towards them. Well, you can put your money in a GIC and get a couple of percent or something and lock it up for years. Or you could take that same bank and buy their preferred share and probably double your rate of return, but after the tax advantage of preferred share dividends, especially in a, you know, if it's in a taxable account. Mm -hmm. After that tax advantage, you're really tripling your after-tax rate of return. And it's issued by the same bank. They're not just going to cancel that dividend despite you. Right? <laughs> there's a pretty long record of them making good on those dividend promises. So uh, there's some decent yields to be had even for conservative investors. Of course, you want to diversify that uh, and make sure you've got a, a, a well-constructed a well portfolio. But even for conservative investors, uh, you don't need to be settling for the uh, 2 and 3% on offer, especially in taxable accounts where uh, that really is not a whole lot left over for you. And like we so often see, uh, the somebody buying a GIC, and it didn't matter back in 1993, 1992, let's say you were getting a, uh, an, well, now I've got to go back probably to 91. So let's say you're looking at an 8, 9% GIC. But half of it goes to taxes, and inflation was running at more than that, right? So these are negative-producing real rates of return, real after-tax rates of return, and almost always have been, right? That that's kind of the structure of these investments, that in exchange for predictability and stability, what you get is a stable and predictable loss of purchasing power, right? That the, the, You don't grow wealthy investing in this sort of thing. And it didn't matter. People still lament, uh, oh, geez, if I could just get 6% GICs, if I could get 9, oh, those were the glory days. They were still negative after-tax real rates of return when you factor in taxes and inflation. Well, it's no different now when their rates are even lower. So if you've got a 2.5% uh, interest rate on a GIC or a government bond, and you've got to go a long way out in the government bond to get that, after taxes, you maybe are keeping half that, and inflation is running at a higher rate. So you still do need to look for yields or at least a diversified enough portfolio that it generates the sort of return that not only that people need, because the markets don't care what you need, right. not so much justifying a, or, or looking for a return that is what you need, but looking for a return that is a fair and reasonable rate of return on your invested capital. You've saved your entire life to get to this point. 
you're still saving and looking for opportunities. Whatever that may be, whatever point in life you are, your capital deserves a reasonable rate of return. And that reasonable rate is higher than inflation on an after-tax basis. So still possible to put that portfolio together. And <clears throat> I think there's still plenty of uh, opportunity. Don't find stocks to be particularly overpriced. And uh, you know, it, we, we often speak in generalizations because you're generally talking about the market. Well, the market is made up of a lot of different companies. Some of them expensive, some of them uh, heavily uh, dependent on continued strong growth. But lots of others are cheap. Lots of others are just nice, yielding, stable, steady, long-running companies that are well-run. And um, you can build up portfolios of pretty decent-looking stocks. So um, you know, I'd be very much surprised if the remainder of the year is not positive for us and that uh, we probably have a nice return coming to us, a decent return. Mm. You know, they, when you've run up this much in the first quarter, well, the calendar year, meh, maybe there's only a, a mid-single digits or something left. But that's going to make for a good 2019 rate of return. When you've had a fourth quarter like we just had last year, I'm going to ignore the first quarter when it comes to this year's rate of return. It's the next nine months that determines whether it's a good year or not because we still had to make up for last fourth, the fourth quarter there. But um, I think there's reason enough for optimism that you can get the kind of returns that we plan around for uh, the long run for clients. So. I remember asking the president of the Toronto Real Estate Board once, when he walks into his office on a Monday morning mm. and there's a copy of the Star and the Globe and the National Post sitting mm. on his desk and he reads them and one says... What, what that, a clean uh, picture that you think that happens, yeah. It is, well, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one saying that, that housing sales are up, one saying housing sales are down, the third saying housing sales have stalled. If he just yeah. takes all the newspapers, throws them in the air. Do you feel the same way? Do you think there's just... And I understand why. I mean, part I'm part of this machine. I get it. I mean, I understand that we need to generate content. Yeah. Are there just too many experts out there? I remember uh, it, it, you just reminded me of it, so I thought it was a funny story. Um, when George Bush was George W. Bush was president, and some a reporter in the press uh, gaggle there had had asked him about reading. You know, which papers does he read? And uh, he says, well, I don't really read the newspapers. And they said, well, how can you know what's going on to the sitting president of the United States, right? And he said, young man, because <laughs> I thought it was polite and, you know, patrician and but wow. condescending nonetheless. Yes. <laughs> young man, it's a very large presumption you make that I need you to tell me the news. <laughs> right? so, so I don't rely on those, right? Those, that's not where I get my news. If, it's, if you're reading it in the Toronto Star and reacting to it, then you're essentially you are the fodder of uh, more sophisticated investors, of investors who have earlier and better access to information. It's really interesting. Don't, if, it's, if it's in the headlines and if it's in the front page, it's too late. Take All a right. break. We've got to come back. This is the Sunday Money Show here at In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. He is investment advisor Alan Cameron from Bellwether Investment Management, Inc. Uh, by the way, phone lines are open. You want to give us a call? We can talk about all kinds of things financially. We can talk about RRSP, investment strategies, tax reduction, insurance, retirement, education planning, you name it. Uh, we're up for the conversation at 416-872-1010. Also, if you'd like to reach Alan, his website, 1L, alancameron.com. And his office number, 1-800-717-8117. As I said, the easiest way, pick up the phone, give us a call right here at 416-872-1010.
You're listening to the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Good morning. I'm Ian Grant. Thank you for joining us. And in studio this morning, investment advisor Alan Cameron is here from Bellwether Investment Management, Inc. Just a reminder, by the way, phone lines are open, 416-872-1010. We can talk about all kinds of things financial. Just talking in the last segment about in uh, interest rates, Alan. And with interest rates low and by all you know predictions mm-hmm. staying low, what does that do to the balanced portfolio then? That's part of that whole planning question I have. Yeah, it definitely presents some challenges. If you're trying to balance out a portfolio, and let's go back to the old rules of thumb, the old uh, cliches in the investment industry. Uh, you invest your age in bonds or something like that. These are all uh, cliches that came about because there was a time where that made sense, and they're now decades, decades, you know, scores of years long. Um, the problem is these things come into the lexicon of investing because for a 20, 30, 40-year stretch, they became – people learned lessons and said, hey, if you just did that, you wouldn't go too far wrong. Hmm. And then things change. So – Somebody who's investing on that basis right now is investing on the basis of a time-honored and proven strategy that worked from the 50s until the 90s, right? It's just that we're now 20, 25, 30 years later, and things have changed. And I don't think investors can simply go by those rules of thumb any longer and not do themselves a disservice. So if you're trying to build out some balance in your portfolio, trying to look at smoothing out the volatility, which is absolutely crucial, that remains true. These very low interest rates on government bonds are, are an issue. We've got to look for some substitutes. We've got to try and maybe substitute more stable dividend income where we can get higher yields on, on stocks. Maybe we have to put up with a, a slight increase in volatility. But we've got to do that with a plan that takes into account your timeframes, takes into account your potential draw. But I think that, yeah, there's the, certainly the case that a balanced portfolio is likely to have a lower average rate of return, let's say, for the next 10, 20 years than it had from 1990 to 2010. But we've also got lower inflation. The net result maybe doesn't end up any different, but it is one of the reasons why it is now much more valuable, much more crucial to consider the costs of your investment. When you were making a 9% average return on a balanced portfolio, in part because you had 8% government bonds in there or 6% government bonds. When you were making nine and your costs were two, two and a quarter, yeah, okay, you you net out six and three quarters, 7%, and that puts you on track for what you need to get, and that's fine. But what if your average portfolio right now is six and a half? Not so bad because inflation is tamer than it was, but if you then take off costs of two, two and a half, mm-hmm. you're down to four, and that becomes an issue. Costs are crucial. The The industry has been perhaps slow to adapt and uh, move to more competitive Uh, more competitive options. However, they're there, and it's entirely possible to look at better uh, rates of return. I mean, if somebody's sitting on a segregated fund, and we do run across it quite a bit, people who bought these 10 years ago because they were concerned over the market's volatility, maybe just after the financial crisis, just during, they could be sitting on an investment with a three and a quarter percent cost, and they only have a balanced fund in there. Uh, I think the chances of them making anything much more than the rate of inflation on their investment portfolio is very slim. We've got to look at alternatives to it. We've got to be able to explain to people, here's how we'll deal with the risk that you don't need that guarantee that you are paying so, so dearly for, that maybe we should be looking at alternatives 
and a much lower cost structure. So part of what we did in moving to Bellwether and in, and, and Bellwether's whole creation, its whole raison d'etre, uh, uh, it is to try and make sure that we can deliver efficiencies, whether we've got low cost structures and yet still able to deliver top of class diversification, portfolio selection, all of that. But you could be looking at a difference where let's just take a million dollar portfolio that we're going to have the same sort of professional management and diversification in a portfolio, still access to everything that they, they could be buying, mm. but doing it at a full percent lower than they're paying in a mutual fund right now, doing it at perhaps 2% lower than they'd be paying in a segregated fund. Well, if your gross return is seven and we on a million, we're about 135, 137, and that includes your tax returns, it includes financial plans, all of it. But that's all in at that. And if we're at 137 and uh, somebody else is 237, somebody else is 337, well, if your gross is seven, that makes an enormous amount of difference, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to be uh, very cost conscious in an environment where, partly because of interest rates being low now, and I think low for what could be the remainder of our lives, but it's certainly going to be a long stretch before we ever start to see the kind of interest rates we saw, really an aberration that we saw in interest rates where they were up in the double digits there. Um, costs matter a lot more now. So, yeah, that's part of our uh, our shift is to a more competitive environment when we moved to Bellwether a I talked year to, and a half, two years ago. I remember talking to you about about the move and, and mm -hmm. you know, asking you what it meant, what it does, and I know that yeah. it was an awful lot of work. Yeah. It was far from a simple process. For your clients, there, was there a difference? Was there a tangible difference? Or Yeah, um, and part, part of that too. I mean, for, for clients where they weren't getting deductibility of fees, um, although we, we did most of what we could to, to do that on our old platform, uh, that's certainly the case for them now, wow. that uh, in non-registered accounts it's tax-deductible fees. Um, one of the other things is just how we price families. Right, so if we are, uh, let's say at one thirty-five or so in that first million, but let's say it was, so we've got one client where this is exactly the case. The uh, my client been client for many years, about a million dollar portfolio, so that's their fee. They brought their parents on with another million. Well, the whole family gets priced on that total now, even though they get separate reporting nice. and everything. They don't see yeah. what each other has, but we lump them together as a family in terms of pricing. So that second million is 1%. The third million is 0.7. Wow. And, and wow. so on. So it just keeps on getting lower and lower. You know, $4 million portfolios, I don't know, maybe 88, 90 basis points, like 0.9% overall. That's, especially when you compound it. Well, yeah. I mean, so the, the savings can quickly amount into the tens of thousands of dollars per year when you can gather together a family's assets like that. So it could be, you know, my clients are in their 50s, but their parents are in their 70s. And they've got kids who are starting out now and have, you know, even $100,000. Well, they're now getting in at that lower pricing. Wow. And it allows us to do what we really should have been doing all along and certainly what we always have endeavored to do. We want to treat uh, family wealth. This is uh, how do we help your, your young people accumulate towards retirement. How do you minimize the amount of tax they can pay, but help them build a portfolio and then minimize the taxes and maximize their, their draw through retirement and leave the most amount of money to their heirs. You're talking about managing wealth through generations, but why don't we just manage that wealth and treat them the same 
uh, treat them in a way that recognizes that fact. If we're running the generations of money and then making it tremendously attractive in terms of pricing and, uh, and savings, well, it helps us do our job better. Conversation continues, and you're invited to participate. You can pick up the phone, give us a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text us, 71010. Regular texting rates apply. This morning on the Sunday Money Show, investment advisor Alan Cameron is here from Bellwether Investment Management, and you can reach his office at 1-800-717-8117, 1-800-717-8117, or check out his website. All the information is there, 1L, Alan Cameron. Com. Easiest way, though, pick up the phone. Give us a call this morning at 416-872-1010. I'm Ian Grant, and the Sunday Money Show continues right here on News Talk 1010. This is the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Good morning. I'm Ian Grant. Thank you for joining us. And in studio this morning, investment advisor Alan Cameron is here from Bellwether Investment Management, Inc. Phone lines are open. You want to give us a call? You can talk about all kinds of financial stuff, something we've mentioned, something we haven't, at 416-872-1010. And, of course, you can always send us a text message, 71010. Regular texting rates apply. Uh, during the break, you and I were talking about real estate, and it's just one of those areas where, you know, it doesn't. It's one of those things that we can talk about until time and memoriam, and it's it, it's hard to believe it's ever going to change because mm-hmm. the people that have real estate don't want it to change, and the people that don't own real estate are desperate for it to change. But there's more people have real estate than don't. Yeah, it's uh, it's a unique marketplace, the Canadian marketplace, mm. and there are some reasons why. Um, when you make real estate investing as a primary residence tax-free, well, you're going to veer more capital in over particularly over decades of time. It amounts to a fair bit of money. Canadians spend more of their total income on housing than a, the vast majority of countries, way more than the OECD average of countries. And we also have one of the highest home ownership rates in the world, in the developed world, um, so we're probably around 67% home ownership rates. Well, what do you want to boost it to? You know, if Paris is 33, 35, Berlin, 35, can, that's what a lot of cities consider normal and have been that way for decades. Mm. They don't see any problem with, with renting, and there's plenty of economic uh, reasons why it's not such a bad thing to rent, right? When you... One of the highest... You've home- always been a proponent for rent. I mean, since well, we started doing it, sure, this show. It depends in part on lifestyle choices, right? But I, I, I'm i taken back to a, a seminar I did well over 20 years ago now with one of Canada's top economists. And um, he said, you know, if you... So keep in mind, well over 20 years, it's only gotten more persuasive, this argument, since. But he said, if... If you are going to be a young person in, a, in an economy that now prizes mobility, where often... The moves you make up your career ladder are side by side. You go from one company to another in order to jump up the rungs of the ladder. You don't just start at one company and make your way up there, spend your whole career there. Well, if that's the case, economic mobility becomes an asset. It helps you gain a forward momentum in your career. It helps you move up in terms of income. But to make the point, he said, where do you think the highest home ownership rate in all of Canada is? And it was Newfoundland. And he says, wow. Newfoundland is a economic basket case, the cod yeah. stocks, the oil, at that point particularly, massive dependency within that economy. It's just not what you would want to model your, your economy on. Well, one of the reasons why they have the highest homeownership rates is because you can't get out. You can't sell. You can't, you, who are you going to sell it to? That's who right. would be moving in? Yeah. 
what the, so as he said, you know, what should have happened is a huge portion of the population of Newfoundland should have packed up and moved to Calgary, and that was that. It's the best economic outcome for them, but they can't sell because they own their house. Well, even in the GTA, do you really want to be living in Oakville, Burlington, and get a fantastic job offer in Markham or in Ajax? And you have to turn it down because you're not commuting. (laughs) You're not not going to sign yourself up for that sort of thing for the rest of your life. So um, that mobility for young people starting out is a a pretty reasonable thing. Um, In terms of cash flow, I mean, most people... They use their house as a forced savings instrument. It it makes them put this money away towards the principal of their house. Sure, it's gone up over the last little while. It's gone up in large part because of lower interest rates. Well, we're not going to see interest rates go from, you know, my first mortgage was 11.25% in the early 90s. And now, what, two and a half, right, three? Um, The next 8% decline in interest rates, where's that going to come from? You know, the next move in interest rates, we're not going to see it 8% drop in interest rates again. But not by to your negative own figures, the, mm-hmm. you know, the catch-22 there is that, that an, you know, a politician would be mm-hmm. stupid knowing that 70% yeah. of his constituency own real estate and coming out against owning real estate. I mean, yeah. they're, obviously they're not going to do anything that would, would hamper that. Any smart politician is going to do their best to, to prop it up. Smart politicians? Sure. No. Oh, so we're speaking hypothetically. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, no. Um, yeah. And, and from the guy who listens to country music. Ah, once in a while. You know. <laughs> what, we, uh, what we end up with is, I think, a, either a degree of economic illiteracy or hypocrisy when it comes to this sort of thing. If you are really interested in seeing um, young people get into housing, making it more affordable for them, if you're really interested in uh, getting homeless people off the streets and all that. And at the same time, you want to say, but we need immigration. We need 150,000 uh, families coming into the GTA every, every year. Fine. That's all well and good. But if we aren't building at least 150,000 units, you're causing this problem and you're exacerbating it. You're right. Politicians being uh, somewhat opportunistic in this are frequently to be heard in the same sentence, same paragraph saying, we need to do more about uh, affordable housing and we're going to bring this or that government program into the fore to make it easier for people to bid up the price of housing, Hmm. right? That's not the solution. You're not going to do anything to make this problem go away simply on this or that government program or trying to make it, uh, you know, a lower interest rate available to to young people or increasing their home buyers program. All you're doing is immediately affecting demand. You make it easier for them to buy and afford but you haven't changed supply. And it's also almost like we've created two different markets of housing mm-hmm. with this, this huge void in between. On one side, there's this, quote, affordable housing that you're mm-hmm. right, politicians talk about. Mm-hmm. And in that same sentence, way across the void is housing. Yeah. You know, is, is that, you know, one, two, three million dollar house in yeah. Toronto. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the affordable housing and the not affordable housing and the people who live there, you know, never the twain shall meet. Yeah, we, we could do a pile of things to improve the, the lot of affordability in the city. So in some areas of the, the city, what's wrong with making a, an existing structure? Okay, it's easy to become a legal duplex. Take a 3,000 square foot home and make it into 1,500 square foot units. The right. people on either side of that. Precisely, right? So... We're going to stand in the way of increasing the supply of available housing. We're all, yeah, we should have lots of affordable housing, just not anywhere I can see it. 
not anywhere where it impacts me, not anywhere where it brings the, down the, uh, potentially right. my house value. But that's my investment, and, and, right. and you know, it doesn't make sense that I would help someone weaken my investment. Right. It, I get it. It's except, proved, been proven not to be true and all that kind of stuff, but that's not the attitude. it's also that's false wealth, right? right? I mean, if, if, if as a society we simply say, okay, once I've got mine, then it shut everybody else out. Does anybody flat out say that? Well, you've in, never been to Young and Eglinton. In effect, of, <laughs> but in effect, our policies are pursuing that, right? You need to make it easier to increase the supply of housing, and that's true not here, not just here, but in every jurisdiction. But one of the other simpler things, and and maybe what we ought to be focusing more time and attention on, is um, the impact of foreign housing. There's been a few articles recently about that sort of thing. It's nuts that we allow people to abuse that principal residence exemption. So here it is. Uh, from here on in, we're going to treat only citizens, right? Citizens, I'm not even going to say landed immigrant or anything. Let's just, let's restrict this access to the home buyers program or to the, uh, the principal residence exemption as much as possibly, or you've got to own it for more than 10 years, or you got to, whatever it turns out to be, but make that harder to access because it makes the impact from foreign investors less severe it makes it less attractive for them and all i'm saying to do is treat them as harshly as we do cottage owners so you're going to risk those voters for 10 all those years. people if you've got a second place you're paying capital gains taxes on it now why shouldn't we treat everybody especially foreign investors here that way she's new york's talking about a pedeter tax that would be uh, very harsh on non-resident uh, real estate owners we don't even have to go that far just tax it as a capital gain that's that's not even that bad a thing Take a break. We will return. This is the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. He is Alan Cameron, and if you'd like to reach him, his website, 1LAlanCameron.com, and his office number is 1-800-717-8117. 1-800-717-8117. You can give us a call, and when we come back, we will get to your calls at 416-872-1010 and your text messages at 71010. This is the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Good morning. I'm Ian Grant. Thank you for joining us. And in studio with me this morning, investment advisor Alan Cameron from Bellwether Investment Management, Inc. You'd like to reach us, you can be part of the conversation at 416-872-1010. Send us a text message, 71010. I'll tell you what, let's get to some of those lines now. Larry is in Toronto this morning. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for calling. Good morning. Good morning. What's Hi, question? Alan. How yeah. are you? Good. Good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah. Good. Hey, Alan, I have a question. Uh, I've been invested with a large investment company for about 12 years now. Yeah. And I got a, a buyout from where I work. So I invested all the money with them to uh, for my retirement. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. they invested it. And at first, I was doing pretty good. But for the last five years, I've only been making about 1.2%. Mm. Uh, a change in value, like getting it back. Yeah, annually, and you mean, right? I'm thinking, that sounds low to me, but I, because yeah. I'm not a money guy, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm thinking, should I stay with them? Should I just put my money in a bank? What should I be doing? What do you suggest? Yeah, it's it's low. Um, you know, unless there's some uh, some other factor involved in this. Like if you had said to them, look, I, I, I can never stand seeing my assets decline one quarter, um, you know, well, maybe that pushes you into such a conservative portfolio that you end up with that result. But I mean, the average for the last five years for a global neutral balanced fund, just sort of the, the well-diversified go-anywhere type of fund, 
I think the average for the category is about 7% to 7 and change per year, right? Well, so that's, that's yeah, compounded that's, growth rates. So, right. um, and the last five years has not been the worst of investing because um, while there's, there's been a couple of downturns within it, like we were talking earlier at the show the, about the fourth quarter, um, there's been downturns, but it still hasn't been bad investing. You just have to look back at where the markets were five years ago today. And you know that you're you're compounding at better rates than that. So um, yes. it, it's it's worth a look to see what the cause of the problem is. Um, but it sounds like it's something that can pretty easily be alleviated too. So yeah, well, um, well, like I say, because I'm not a money guy, mm -hmm. I and this is a large uh, investment group. I kind of figured they knew what they were doing. And for the first few years, I was making great returns. But mm -hmm. like I say, the last five years has been very poor. I do take a small amount out every month to live on, yeah. not a lot, yeah. but at the rate I'm going, I'm going to be running out of money, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the next 10 years or so. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, what can I do now to try to prolong that a little bit? So, right. so you, you, you mentioned because there's such a large thing that they must know what they're doing. Let me put it this way. If you were one of 10,000 patients in a hospital, would you think that's a better approach <laughs> to going to see your own family doctor? And that's why I'm asking these questions yeah. and starting to shop around a bit. Yeah, so. I, you know, I think the the best thing that you can say in terms of scale, when you're talking about, oh, this is a massive firm, they got a hundred billion dollars of assets, they're all over the world, or this or that, is that there should be economies of scale there. It should help to keep the costs very low, very competitive. <laughs> the reality is, though, that's not what we see, is it? Right? <laughs> that. He, the, the larger they are, Tell the, me about the bank more profits, Alan. the more we tend to see yeah. that they are very, very hesitant and slow to innovate in terms of cost reductions. Larry, thank you for your call. It brings to mind a conversation I had with one of the big bank employees who was mm -hmm. telling me that, you know, because I'm the same way. I, I think the way Larry does, and my mm -hmm. loyalty should be worth something. And the mm -hmm. reality is that you're already taken care of. You're you're safe. You're moved to the back of the line. It's the mm. people they need to work to to maintain that are going to get the attention. Uh, those 20-odd years ago, it's got to be now, at, uh, that I think it was Avis. Uh, we're number two. We try harder, <laughs> right? Well, let's skip the number fives. Right? Let's yeah, skip the top yeah. five, six, ten even. Um, then you start trying harder. Uh, the Canadian financial system. So in my lifetime, there's there's been just the existing six schedule schedule one banks in the remainder of my life there will be no more than six schedule yeah, one okay. banks yeah. we are not talking about the most competitive of financial systems here in fact it's very much not the case it's oligopolistic it's uh you've got a handful of banks that all have no incentive roots whatsoever None. to compete viciously against each other like they're not going to rock the boat and cut profits just to grab a bit of market share so on the other side, you've got a few very large players outside of the banks, Manulife, Sun Life, and PowerCorp. And of those firms that I've just laid out there, so in the space of four seconds, I can say that these nine companies are basically controlling 80-odd percent of the Canadian financial marketplace. Um, that doesn't lend itself, I don't think, to uh, the most competitive and innovative types of solutions. So I have always in my career looked outside of them because you're going to be a little more nimble, a little more cutting edge, a little more innovative. Mm -hmm. And because it's not all about generating corporate profits and driving it into your quarterly results if it's just my practice, right? For my practice, which is a little independent unit 
of any company I've ever been affiliated with. Um, and I've changed companies when my practice, meaning my clients, I didn't feel were best served. So I'll move and find a place where they are. Well, when that's the case, I can look very long term. I can say, what's the best thing for me over my career and the best thing for my clients in, in terms of my fiduciary responsibility to them? Uh, that's a whole different thing than going to work one day and having somebody say, uh, yeah, we got this from upstairs. Uh, here's what you're going to do now. True. Right. That, yeah. uh, that's, a, that's an entirely different thing. Would you want your, your family doctor to, to be in a corporate environment where one of their biggest concerns is market share, profitability per quarter, um, ease of transition? You know, I mean, their sort of agenda handed down to your doctor where they say, you know what, last, last week we didn't write enough uh, Lipitor prescriptions, so you're going to start doing more of those. Hmm. Right? That, you know, I'm stretching for a metaphor. No, here, but, but I, I, think, think, I think you're you know, smack on. I, I totally agree. But we can come up with a dozen others. It's, um, I want to be, in, in terms of my practice and how I deal with my clients, in a position where when we sit down and decide this is the best thing for you, that my clients can sit with me, say, here's what we need. I can say, here's what I think our best solution yeah. is. And, you're and also when we not, agree, that's the end of the discussion. You're also not choosing between one of the, you know, 14 personalized portfolios on the shelf to offer that client. I mean, there's yeah. there's so many areas. And you know what, though? I think Larry's representative of the vast majority of people listening to this show, and probably Canadians in general, mm -hmm. where they assume that the, the experts that they hand off to are doing the best for them because they're experts, yeah. and that's what they're there for. And it's that oversight. I mean, we've talked before about the whole second opinion thing. And people, you know, if, if people were smart, they would get that second opinion, but mm -hmm. they're not, and they assume that what they're getting right now is the best and they could yeah. be piddling away thousands of dollars a year based on that assumption yeah it's it, it's always I mean it, it's not going to change now i've been at this too long to be still under the illusion that this will yeah, vastly change when i, I totally when i agree. when i just say these words here yeah. but uh people who will spend hours and hours driving around on a saturday looking for the <laughs> best deal on a microwave yeah and yet when it comes to some of the most expensive things they'll ever do, some of the stuff that over yes. their lifetime is the biggest drain on their money. It well, kills me first, that people sit on hold for two hours with the cable yeah. company over $14. Well, the cable companies are a perfect example of the problem, though. Canadians pay easily double what U.S. consumers do easily. for inferior service, right? We pay vastly, multiples more than all sorts of other countries outside of the U.S. because it's even cheaper than a lot of them. Mm -hmm. You get nothing but unlimited this, unlimited that, fast, free stuff, and pay a third of what we do. Well, partly because in our system, it is so tightly controlled in terms of access. There's no, there's no new competitors coming in. You're, you're not going to suddenly see uh, AT&T or Verizon come in here and build a whole network of uh, stuff for them, just for them to enter this market. They're not allowed. And you're not seeing JP Morgan or Bank of America or any of these others come in and revolutionize our industry. But the... U.S. people pay less in terms of financial services, vastly less, than Canadians do. Hmm. Well, this is partly because we've got some kind of weird trade-off here where people are not... On the one hand, they recognize we pay too much for financial services, and on the other, they turn around and say, yeah, but our banks are great. That's true. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's I a totally weird kind of... I agree. Yeah, it, it's a... I keep saying, well, it's an S&M relationship. I don't know. <laughs> it's, why, why, why do we take such pride in the fact that our banks didn't fail in the financial it's crisis? Not, yeah, it's, yeah right? absolutely. Yes. Well, sure. But if you, if you came to me and said, uh, you know, what's the best way for 
for for us as clients to prop up your f- position, Alan. Uh, let's double my fees. You know, that'll make me more financially sound. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. But why would Canadians be proud to have these big, stable, uh, safe financial institutions? Safe and stable because we pay way too much. Or, <laughs> as you've said before, get over it and buy bank stocks. Like, right? There is the other side of the argument, yeah, which I mean, we have 20 seconds to solve. Yeah, from, from a bank that says, you don't want to take the risk of markets, buy our GICs. Well, how safe is the how safe is that GIC if your bank fails? Out of right? time. Well, if their bank's not failing, what's wrong with your, their stock? Your bank's not failing. Yeah. <laughs> this has been the Sunday Money Show here on In Depth Radio News Talk 1010. Investment Advisor Alan Cameron from Bellwether Investment Management Inc. This hour, if you'd like to reach him, his website one l allencameron.com and his phone number one eight hundred seven one seven. 8117. I'm Ian Grant. Back at 1 o'clock with Employment Law. Howard Levitt taking your calls right here on News Talk 1010.